Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I am David Kern and I am joined by Heidi White and Tim McIntosh. And we are here to discuss the final two books of Homer's epic poem, The Odyssey. Heidi and Tim, welcome back to the show. How's it going? I'm so sad to be done with the Odyssey. I don't, can we do it again? <laughs> we barely scratched the surface. Yeah. What hey, how, how do you think audiences would do if we did the Iliad? I mean, I, I'm thinking of the last podcast that we did when we talked about um, young men seem to kind of lean toward the battles of the Iliad. Young women tend to, tend to lean toward the kind of possibility of reunited matrimony between Odysseus and Penelope. How would our audience, do you guys think, how, how do you think they would do with the Iliad? They would probably love it, but... Oh, I'm sure they'd be is fine. Is it worth doing? Well, yeah, I mean, one yes. day, not next. You know, let's make some decisions. Let's just pound it up. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... This is not our job, Tim. <laughs> there's, an opening, there's an opening in the future. <laughs> Down the line. The future I feel is like, wide open. I feel like once I got... Um, a river runs through it into the queue. I kind of just need to, I just need to be satisfied, right? This is like the slippery slope that people talk about. Yeah, right. The camels. One day we're doing the, the river door. runs through it. And the other day there's like a mutiny. Right. Is setting the post yeah. on Facebook with the next reading schedule. And it's all like Cormac McCarthy and Hemingway and Dostoevsky and Tolstoy. That's all we do on closed reads anymore. Maybe you should go start the Tim McIntosh podcast. No, I don't want to do what? the Tim are McIntosh you... podcast. <laughs> I want to do this for that. Say you're sorry. Who are you talking to? <laughs> you. Maybe you're here. I love that. I love that he didn't even like really. He was like, I'm not really. What is there to apologize for? Yeah. <laughs> no, a Tim McIntosh podcast would be incredible, but I'm just saying it should be in addition to the podcast that we're doing right now. Oh, got it. I mean, okay. to be fair, the plays, the thing recently has been the Tim McIntosh podcast with Sarah Jane Bentley. So every you know. podcast Tim is on is the Tim McIntosh <laughs> podcast. True. I hope not. I hope. By the not. way, people should go listen to the former interview that that Tim and uh, Heidi did together because Heidi interviewed Tim, and my my headphones just got unplugged. So if you're speaking right now, I wouldn't know it. So I'm plugging them in while so I speak. We should say something about David. But Let's say something Heidi, about David. He won't hear it. He won't hear say? it. I, no, no okay. Big. I can hear. Hello. You. What? Heidi and Tim talked about, um, you know, comparison of modern theater with Shakespearean theater and, you know, things like that. I'll, you know, you should go listen to it. And it was a great conversation. It was a lot of fun. Yes. So that's on the Forma, the Forma feed. Uh, Speaking of feeds and such things, uh, those of you who are listening, we would appreciate it if you could go, you know, at the end of this series on the Odyssey, go leave us a review, Rate rate the podcast, tell us how we're doing. Let us know. Um, help us okay, spread the word. Okay, so really well. quick, I know we've actually had a couple of minutes of banter already, and <laughs> we don't always do that. So, I do want to give a shout out to my cousin Taylor's wife, Becca Jones. Uh, she sent me an Instagram. Why does in she California. have to be known as Taylor's wife? Why can't you just say well, to my to I, Becca Jones, who happens to be married to my cousin? 
Okay, so Shout we record. <laughs> what has gotten into David today, Heidi? Well, I was a little like feisty a yesterday, and I feel I deserve it. So, yeah, and, I, and I have to record two episodes back to back with you people. I know Aww. this is the best day. So, my cousin-in-law Becca, who is married to my cousin Taylor, that's mm. how I started. That's why I started mm. that way. Is, mm. It's a little but, better. I'm looking right. out for you, Becca. Go ahead, Heidi. All right. Becca's amazing. <laughs> and she teaches English at a public school. And she and I see each other rarely, but when we do, we love it. And so anyway, she didn't know I was on the podcast. And she sent me an Instagram message yesterday saying, hey, I just started listening to this new podcast, Close Reads. Is that you? No <laughs> so, way. Yes. So she's teaching the Odyssey this year and uh, had just stumbled upon Close Reads and doing research for her class. And so anyway, that's pretty cool. So hi, Becca. Married to yeah. my cousin. Taylor. <laughs> hi, You're Becca. your own person. Yeah. If there's one thing we have decided, right, on the, the, on the Odyssey is that women are their own people. That's right. We now know that. We didn't know that before. It's a it's a it's a lesson that we all right, learned. Yeah, exactly. So um, anyway, yeah, we are here to discuss the the, the uh, final episode. Don't forget that you can, or the final two books rather. Um, don't forget that on our final episode on the Odyssey next week, we are going to be answering your questions. So you can send your questions into us on the Facebook group, which you can find um, by searching Close Reads Podcast Discussion Group or just Close Reads over on Facebook. We'll let you. We'll click that little join button. We'll uh, we'll welcome you in with open digital arms, and uh, and then you can also follow along on Instagram and on Twitter at Close Reads Pods. And if you want to send a question in via email, you can do so at closereadspodcasts at gmail.com. Okay, so that'll be next week, though. Let's talk about the final two books of the Odyssey and hear what uh, you two think of these final two books before we get into, you know, what the listeners think about and what they're concerned about. Hopefully, we're addressing that a little bit anyway. But um, we, we talked last episode, or at least I did a little bit about how, to me, these last two books feel a bit like an epilogue because you have this great big battle and the sort of most, well, not the most cathartic, but there's this big cathartic moment where, you know, Odyssey, Odysseus jumps up on the table, you know, that Heidi was talking about, jumps up on the table, he and Telemachus destroy the suitors and claim the kingdom back. And then, you know, it ends before he's reunited with Penelope. But here we get the the reunion of of um the husband and wife the thing that one of the things that we've been kind of waiting for do you disagree tim because i when we were talking last time i got the sense that you were disagreeing with me without saying that you were disagreeing with me that it's that to call it an epilogue is incorrect do you want to do you want to take issue with me on that is it a matter is it a semantical thing that's going on here oh yeah i i, I wouldn't take issue with that i think it's just semantics i just prefer denouement <laughs> <laughs> that was a joke. That was totally no, a joke. No, like no, I expected the, the like the um canned. I think Logan needs to put in like canned laughter at that point. <laughs> but that's quibbling. That's me forcing a quibble, David. I don't want to do that. Yeah, denouement is fine. I mean, you know, we can go with that. I, you know, semantics. So and that's a little bit of all that. I guess we can go home now. Yeah. Okay. Hey, great podcast, you guys. The Odyssey is a good book. One <laughs> um, we we've talked a lot about sleep in this in the in our 
previous conversations, what, 10 episodes or nine episodes or something about the first 22 books. And then we get book 23, where Emily Wilson actually titles it The Olive Tree Bed. And there's this line around book, sorry, around line 19, where Penelope says, I have not slept so soundly since my Odysseus marched off to see that cursed town. And this is before they've even reunited. And I wanted to see if, you know, we, we obviously get some, we get some resolution of plot. You know, we get the denouement of the plot points that have been, that have been thrown out there. Um, but I wanted to, to see if we could go back to some of these thematic things that have been thrown out there. Some of these thematic threads, if you will, and see if we can pull those together. So what are some themes that you feel like we have talked, touched on um, that we have not, that we have not sort of wrapped up that, that are important to you guys to wrap up. I think that's going to happen a little bit with the questions from, from the, from the listeners and, you know, the plot points get, we see the plot points get resolved, but within those plot points, what are the, what themes do you see um, getting resolved or that we need to resolve in our conversation? I was just curious about that. Cause I, I, I mainly, I'm curious about how, whether we, are all thinking about the same things, if you will. Heidi, where, mm-hmm. where do you stand on that? Like, what are some some plot or some thematic threads that are out there that you're kind of like, you know, t- jonesing to, uh, to 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 pull discuss, together right, to discuss and pull together? I really love to um, the I'm stumbling all over this one. <laughs> um, Logan, fix it. No, don't. Um, yeah, don't. The opening lines of the Odyssey, talking about the man of many ways, mm-hmm. uh, or as he he as Wilson calls him, the complicated yeah. man. Yeah. That I th- think one of the things that happens with the epics, with both the Iliad and the Odyssey, and to a certain extent the Aeneid, is that we have the invocation of the muse at the beginning, which is a formal device that tells us what the story is about. Right, so we have seeing O Muse of the Rage of Achilles, and then Book Twenty Four of the Iliad. Even though it ends on a cliffhanger and it's unresolved, it's not the end of the war. People are surprised there's not the, you know, the Trojan horse and Achilles' death, but there is a resolution to the Rage of Achilles, and that's the actual ending of the story. Hmm. And so we have the same thing in the Odyssey, uh, in which. The muse, when when calling upon the muse, Homer tells us, this is a story of a man of many ways. This is a story of a man who is complicated, uh, a man who is controversial, a man who is in uh, in many senses morally ambiguous that you can cast judgment upon and hold up as a hero. Uh, and, And then he's also away from home. He's literally the man of many ways. Uh, He's he's gone, like he's on this journey, which takes him in many different directions. And so the resolution then of the odyssey is that the man of many ways is at home and at peace. And that is, I think, where all of this kind of long, complex storyline gets us. Hmm. I was just, that reminded me of a passage, but I can't find it now. So Tim, you talk for a second. (laughs) I'm going to go to a similar place in the book or the same place in the book as Heidi. Um, We've talked a lot about the contrast of 
Odysseus's reunion with Penelope and Agamemnon's reunion with his wife and how the story of Agamemnon keeps being told, especially in the first half of the book, as it sounds like almost as a, um, like an inverse of what awaits Odysseus. So Penelope, true and faithful, awaits Odysseus. Agamemnon's wife, sorry, Clytemnestra? Uh-huh, yes. Um, awaits her husband. Penelope, out of loyalty, Clytemnestra out of some sort of, let's call it revenge, or let's call it, I don't know, what would you call it? She murders him. Right. Um, and so everything that goes right with the reunion between Penelope, excuse me, yeah, Penelope and Odysseus goes wrong with Agamemnon and Clytemnestra. And I just think it's interesting that we kind of reflect again on, we get to hear from Agamemnon in Hades, kind of bemoaning his own plight. And even that kind of symbolic uh, train is, is, arrives at its destination in Hades, just like the, you know, the, what Heidi talked about, Achilles' story is also kind of concluded down in Hades in the conclusion of this book. Mm-hmm. Right. No, that's a really good tie-in, the Agamemnon and Clytemnestra, the faithful wife. Um, I also think we have Telemachus, you know, the story begins with Telemachy, uh, Telemachus as an immature man who doesn't know how to be a man surrounded by other fatherless men uh, who have rejected the traditions of the elders and the suitors and 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 they received their just punishment whereas Telemachus um we have the the resolution of the Telemachy in the last several books of the Odyssey as well um and we've talked a lot about the relationship between gods and men fate and free will uh we see Athena intervening to the last in the Odyssey uh, so th- this story begins and ends with the intervention and protection of Athena. Um, and uh, so a lot of those same threads is, you know, David's question was, what do we, what do we want to talk about? And then of course we, we want to talk about Penelope and Odysseus's reunion, which is delayed again. We have more complicated delays um, that, that in some sense, both of them have to earn and settle back into trust. And that can be frustrating for readers. I, I think it's lovely. So anyway, I think those are some examples of some of the themes. What else, Tim? Well, can I, I want to ask you about um, Telemachus because yes, he does. He does move into manhood. He does kind of like take on this role of the future ruler of the house it's interesting, though, that a lot of the signs that I would see of um, maturity in a young man of his age, I think in our culture, I don't know that I see those sorts of things in Telemachus. It's more, I'm going to come down kind of hard on Telemachus. At least in this translation, Telemachus comes across as um, when he was immature and younger, he was timid. Now that he's grown into manhood, what do we see? He's not afraid of giving orders. It seems like the chief, and he's not afraid of fighting. Those seem to be the two ways in which 
Telemachus um, demonstrates that he is a grown-up. Am, am I being, <laughs> is that too simplistic, Heidi? But what do you I, think I feel, he's, what well, is he missing? There's a kind of um, dimension that he's missing. I almost would call it, I'm tempted to say he's missing wisdom. Not that he's bereft of wisdom, but he, he, doesn't, he doesn't exercise it. Well, I think it's important that he's not. Huh. Um, Why is that, David? Well, I think it's important that he's not all the way, you know, a fully well-rounded leader yet. Because, you know, we talked in the first, during the Telemachy, we talked about how, you know, he, from the, after he turned five, he would have spent, you know, the next decade with his father learning the ways of how to be a wise king. He would have had Odysseus's wisdom and his cunning sort of imprinted on him and that's not going to happen overnight just because his father's back you know there's not some kind of sort of magical f- switch that gets flipped although i guess athena could have influenced that to some degree um although it doesn't seem like she's able to make someone wise she can make someone beautiful and she can in she can change this a situation but she doesn't seem like she's you know in in, in a moment's notice going to be able to make someone you know she can impact situations. Maybe I'm wrong about that. I, that's the. I love that. No, she's the goddess of wisdom. Yeah, but so so, so Telemachus doesn't. He doesn't uh, just because his father's home. He he he's more courageous than he was. Right. He he. But he has not obtained the um, capacity for cunning and for cleverness and wisdom that either of his parents have, because that that wasn't there for his whole life, and it's going to take time for that to emerge. He's yeah. going to have to spend time with with Odysseus. And, you know, uh, one of the things that I know, I know Heidi doesn't like the Tennyson poem, Ulysses, but one of the things that I think is interesting about that poem is that there is this sort of underlying theme in that, that Odysseus has done his job preparing for, preparing for Telemachus to be the king. And I think that that's one of the, you know, we talked last episode, or I did at least for a second about how the Odyssey doesn't end with like a whole bunch of stasis, but where it does end with stasis is that with the the suggestion that one day Telemachus is going to be king and the question of, is he going to be the kind of king that his father was? Um, is, you know, is Ka- you know, like, like in the silver chair, you know, Ka- Caspian doesn't have what's Rillian, right? They have right. to go find Rillian because right. he doesn't have a, a, a you know, six, a six, someone to succeed him who is, who is wise. And, and that is sort of the question that, that the book ends with like in the future, what's that going to look like? And if, if the book just told us that all of a sudden everything was okay and Telemachus was this fully well-rounded adult character who was going to be this great King and following his father's footsteps, that, that would have not been earned. I don't think Yeah, that's going to take some time. That's a great reply to my, I I think my complaint is probably ill-founded because that reply is, is really satisfying. Well, I mean, I think, I think that I don't think, you're wrong to have that complaint. I think it's what I'm saying. I think that, 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 that sense that, that sort of lack of um, satisfaction in his character, I think is, is right. I think is what I'm saying. Well, there's a little moment in uh, that's really important and significant. You guys will recognize it right away. It's in book 22, I think, correct me if I'm wrong on this, please. Uh, for our listeners who want to go find this. Um, when Telemachus leaves the storeroom door open 
Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. and uh, get that's the where weapon. the weapons are. And so the suitors have access to the weapons. And Odysseus did specifically tell him to keep it locked so that, and he, press, he impresses right. it upon Telemachus make sure you shut and lock this door so that they can't get at the weapons so that we can shoot them like sitting ducks. And instead, and Telemachus forgets. Um, and, but this is. So that's evidence of his immaturity, right? He's not yet a, a true warrior. He he, he forgot his father's instructions. So that's a failure on his part. But on the other hand, he owns up to it right away, takes responsibility. Odysseus yeah. doesn't know how the suitors got got weapons, and he thinks maybe they've broken in broken in. And Telemachus says, No, father, it was my fault. I left the storeroom door open and I it might cost us our lives. So and that in you see two those those two exact things in that little anecdote. He is still immature, uh, and yet his his integrity is intact. Yeah, he owns it. His integrity yes. is intact. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess we did have a long debate about his decision to hang the slave girls. So we absolutely did, and that's so. I mean, it is what what I love about the epics is that they do end with ambiguity. They. There's, there's a main storyline or a main problem of the story, a main thing to be resolved, the Rage of Achilles and the Iliad uh, and the, the Man of Many Ways uh, in the Odyssey, which remains a debated problem as we talked about on our last, well, I guess throughout every podcast we've done, throughout all of Western culture, Odysseus, the Man of Many Ways is debated. Yeah. Uh, but everything else, it, like it begins, the epics begin in media race and they end in media race. Mm. There, there, there's no bow on, there's no neatly tied little bow on the end of any of the epics, uh, any of the great epics. So that's, that You're so the right. story goes on. You're so right, Heidi. I, one of the listeners on the Facebook page made a comparison between, in fact, it was on sleep, David, per your original comment huh. at the top of this podcast about um, comparing War and Peace, Tolstoy's War and Peace, mm. and the Odyssey. And it's funny because War and Peace, I'm rereading it now, and it ends, <laughs> it just ends. It's almost like Tolstoy just kind of walked away from the book <clears throat> and decided, okay, let's publish it anyway. I don't really have an end. I'm exaggerating, but this it does long feel... Yeah, I mean, and he was right. If that's the reason he walked away, War and Peace is kind of synonymous with the long, with the and long. It probably novel. was an actual ending, three hundred page or, pages earlier that would have worked just fine. <laughs> yeah, right. But he kept but your going. Point, sorry, we kind of derailed that. We hijacked. <laughs> well, I, I just think, your point is good. And I think this might be a good time to talk about, since it's our penultimate episode, to talk about the nature of epics. I mean, epics are in some ways they function almost like the Bible does for Christians. It is, it is a picture in some ways of a complete world. It's meant to describe that world. It's meant to instruct that world. It's meant to kind of honor those who are worthy of being honoring, honored and to condemn those, Agamemnon. Um, who, or I should say Clytemnestra also, condemn those who are worthy of condemnation. And so just to put a neat conclusion and a neat bow on it without leaving things undone seems to me a little bit 
it's not really what the purpose of an epic traditionally is. And we're talking about, this is one of the epics in Western literature, the Odyssey. Um, and so, yeah, tying everything up. No, it's not really the nature of an epic. Right. So there's nothing to wrap up is what you're saying. It's based on my original, in response to my original question. I, well, I think, think Heidi's he right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think Heidi's right. He, he wraps up like the main plot lines, namely the... Odysseus gets home. <laughs> Odysseus yeah. gets home. He's reunited right. with his wife and he eradicates the suitors. I think without that, we're, the Odyssey is kind of maybe remembered by scholars, but it's not remembered by everyday readers and it's not getting translations, you know, by contemporary scholars. Yeah, it has to wrap up that main storyline. And I think it does that beautifully. And I think War and Peace wraps up its main storyline, which is the spiritual search of Pierre. So I think it, those things have to happen. And it does that very well. It just doesn't solve all of the loose ends. It leaves some of those loose ends feeling like life goes on because life does go on. Right. Well, and I, I, to go along with what you're saying, Tim, I think that it, it's almost like this, this is going to sound extremely poetic and kind of like I love a it. lame, like first time anyone writes a poem when they're 16 years old kind of way. <laughs> can I do an imitation of that? Can I do an imitation? I don't want you to lose your point, Heidi, but can I do an imitation of that yes, poem? Yes, please. All was darkness around me. My friends, once forsooth, loved me. Are they true? <laughs> okay, I, 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 need to, I need to stop. Are you making and, this up or is this like a real poem no, I, you wrote? I, no, your, I'm making it up. Class. I probably did actually write that, but I'm making your it journal. up. journal. Yeah. yeah. It seems like poetry, first poems often go with this like awful sense of isolation that happens in, you know, like early adolescence or something like that. Man, so I'm totally true. derailing us, Heidi. I'm sorry. Sorry. No, I, I wrote a poem about point. a sad clown when I was 16, so <laughs> <laughs> really, that's right. way worse than the one you just made up. <laughs> um, anyway, I, so this is my bad poetic image for it, but I, I think it does work. It's What's the it though? The, for that sense of everything else unresolved, but Odysseus is at home with Penelope. Oh yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. So and and Telemachus and reunite. The man of many ways is at home and at peace. That is the only resolution we get. Just like in the Iliad, the only resolution that we get is that Achilles has kissed the hands of Priam and that they have and he's given Hector's body back and his rage is resolved. So that's the that moment in the Odyssey, um, or that resolution in the Odyssey is like there's still this chaos and darkness, but it's this one sparkling gem, right? And we hold on to that because everything else, there's still these threads that are out there, right? To your point, Tim, Telemachus is still, he, he's still not what he would have been if he had had a father to raise him all of his life. And the, the um, Athena has to intervene. You have to have a deus ex machina in order to resolve the issue of the suitors. 
Yeah. There's like, there's, there's these things that are, that remain unresolved in the story that don't have that satisfying bow on the end that readers can get frustrated with. But I think take your eyes back and put them on that sparkling gem that's set against the backdrop of the darkness, right? That's the whole point. The, and we've talked many times about the chaotic Greek you know, mindset, the way of viewing the world. They would never have thought that a story needs to be wrapped up in everything. But the main thing, that's the resolution we're going to get. And mm-hmm. that's like this satisfying thing that our eyes can continue to keep being drawn to. I think that's actually like a pretty... I like that metaphor. Oh, good. It's, it, and it, it might explain why I don't. I don't want to make too big of a point of this, but if the first things that we see about Telemachus as a mature man are his willingness to battle and his willingness to kind of like take orders and give orders, well, that's vital for someone who's going to be running a household. He has to, I mean, if order, order is in a lot of ways in this world, order is enforced. It's not, it's not just built, but once it's built, it's enforced. And that, that involves like at least a threat of violence um, all the time. It's, I'm trying to formulate a point. I don't know that I'm doing it very well. The world out there, the Greek world out there, outside of Odysseus's home, is complicated and fraught, and it pretends potential violence. When the suitor's fathers learn of their death, they don't come to plead with Odysseus. They come to kill Odysseus and his son. Right. And so I think it makes sense that Telemachus, the first thing that he needs to learn is he has to learn force. He has to learn the willingness to sort of like impose his will. Right. And because there's no way for his household, there's no way for to carry your metaphor, Heidi, there's no way for the gym to kind of be preserved without the willingness of force exerted, without Telemachus being willing to like enforce that order and protect that order with muscle. Physically. Right. Mm. Right. No, I think that's good. What is the name of Simone Vi's famous essay on the Iliad? Um, oh, it's on Iliad. It's something about force, and it's excellent. Like, yeah. so good. Yeah, it's really, um, really amazing. I think it's the, the Iliad, a poem, the poem of force. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. And the points that she makes in that book, in that essay, I think carry into the Odyssey that, that it's a world that is not gentle yet. Right. It's not gentle. Right. I'm trying to find that. What's the name of that essay? Yeah. The Iliad or the poem of force. Yeah. Yeah. 24 page essay written in 1939 by Simo Vai. And then published again in 1940. Um, so I'm trying to see if there's a, there's a, you can find it online. I, yeah, I think it's the University of Virginia. If you Google it, it looks like there's, there's uh, places you can, you can find yeah. it. You know, one thing I've been thinking about as we're talking here is that, so we're talking about the nature of, of epics, Tim. I think you brought that up. Yeah. 
penultimate episode, it's a good time to talk about the nature of <laughs> the nature of ethics. I mean, I think we've been doing that the whole time, but we're Heidi's talking about how, you know, this sort of core central plot wraps up, but then there's still this, these questions of, um, there's still these thematic things that are still out there that sort of lead us to kind of, kind of end the story in media race much as it began in media race. And I've been thinking a lot recently about how um, I have questions about, I mean, I, this is going to take on, I'm going to be taking on a whole, <laughs> a whole way of thinking about literary theory here. I don't really mean to be though. I, I'm just saying I have questions about the way when you think about literature as like, we think about it primarily through, you know, um, anywhere from Northrop Fry's way of thinking about literature to like Jungian theory and Christopher Booker's, you know, seven kinds of story and stuff like that. You know, when you, when you think about the Odyssey as the sort of quest story, one of the questions I have about that is that I think it can cause, or actually this is true even of like, just looking at, looking at things from an Aristotelian, you know, poetics perspective. When we get consumed by sort of, the archetypal plots and the elements of traditional plot, things like that. I think it can cause us to focus so much on um, what I'm going to, I'm going to call that surface plot. It's derogatory in a me in a way that I don't mean it to be, you know, it causes us to think about the traditional plot triangle, right? The rising action, the falling action, the denouement, all those sorts of things that, that we teach in literary, literature classes. But what that causes us to do, I fear, I'm not saying that those things are not important. But those things are things we should be aware of. We should know. We should, we should understand how a story, a classical story works. Like, How does it get us from one place to the other? How, do, how does it create catharsis? All those kinds of things. But I wonder if when we focus on that, we do that at the expense of focusing on a sort of, I don't know what other name to give it, but a sort of universal plot that's at the sort of at the center of the novel that, or a novel or an epic poem or something. This can, can sometimes, or a Shakespeare play, for example, that can sometimes be under the surface. That can be under a little subtle, but it's the thing that that sort of core plot rides on. And, and so you could say, for example, um, the the plot or the story that is the the kingdom of Ithaca, even if you take Odysseus out of it, like the story of Ithaca itself or the story of the gods, for example, are stories that go on beyond the story of Odysseus. Uh-huh. And the story of Odysseus is is playing a big part in the future of the story of Ithaca, right? Or, or, or the present and the future. It's, it's going to impact the future of Ithaca. The work of Zeus and Poseidon and Athena in this book are a, just a small part of the sort of bigger picture story of the Olympian gods. And I wonder if when we focus too much on this sort of artifact that is the journey of Odysseus and then the story at you know, leading to the specific resolution, if it draws us too much away from the sort of universal story, 
that that story rides on. Does what I'm saying make sense at all? I, I have a question, David. I think it makes sense. Can you clarify what you mean by Probably not. The, uni- the universal story? <laughs> yeah, I can't come up with a name for that because when I say universal, I do mean sort of the fact that this story means something like everybody in the universe can can get something out of it. But that's not really what I mean. I mean that there's this sort of... Um, there's this sort of bigger story that the specific story is coasting along on right. or that, that it's a part of. So there's the story of Odysseus, but Odysseus's story is, is, is a part of a bigger story. And that bigger story is, is changed and altered by the choices that Odysseus makes to change his own story. Right. So I think I'm just being confusing, but I'm I, just well, I've been thinking it's about. hard to say which I don't have an tangent, opinion on this. I'm <laughs> total tangent here, but it, it does relate some that um I've been fascinated like lately by the limits that we have of language that like why is that? Why can't we just make up words to say the thing we want to say? Right? Like that's what language should be. You just add stuff. Like I can't say it, so I just make up a word that means that. Why can't we do that? And it's because in a sense of what you're saying, there's this, whenever we come up against a thing that we know but can't say, that in a sense is that universal story, that mystery that we're trying to kind of always break through and get into. And so it has to have something to do with the Christian narrative. Truly, I think that every story does tell that in some way, that we have some kind of uh, creation, a, a, a society, and a um, like an environment in which a story takes place for it. Here's ancient Greece, uh, which has this mythological vision in our mind, right? Like we all have something different that we're picturing when we picture this mythological kind of primeval world. Um, and, and then there's, uh, and that, that world is good somehow. And then it falls, something terrible happens. There's a great war, there's a, there's a separation between a lover and his beloved. Uh, there's somebody far from home. There's there's a monster rising to to challenge the world. Something something happens in this universal story that that is a representation of the fall of man hmm. uh, in the Garden of Eden. And then that monster must be challenged, whatever it is. Uh, and and so a hero has to come, which is epics always have a hero. There's a central figure who's more than a man, but less than a god, right? And um, some some kind of a being of two natures in the epics, at least. Uh, and then in regular stories that don't have epic heroes, somebody has to get rid of that fall. Somebody has to resolve it to redeem the land from it. Uh, and so then there's this epic clash, whatever it is, whether it's, you know, um, Odysseus coming home and killing the suitors, uh, or whether it's, you know, Lizzie Bennett telling Catherine de Berg, Lady Catherine de Berg, where she gets off, right? That that's the slaying of the monster in the story. And then <laughs> the story can be resolved. And so I do think you're right. And as as a Christian, I don't want to impose necessarily the faith upon every story, but it's more than that. It's a different kind of thing than that. It's going underneath the story, within the mystery of the story and saying, why is it that this story so appeals to me? 
right? I've been thinking so much about your question in our last podcast about revenge and justice. And why is it that it's so satisfying that Odysseus jumps on the table and kills the suitors? I think because that's the same feeling I get when I hear the Easter story every year in the liturgy, right? Mm. That that's that it's Christ slaying the the monster, the great dragon. It's mm. it is a sense of resolution that's that's eternal, not just about that story, but about me being a human and longing to be restored. Hmm. It, last episode we talked about the idea of systematization that, right. <laughs> that uh, Western culture sort of has this um, predisposition to systematize things. And right. you, so you look at North, what Northrop Fry or Aristotle did, for example, to take two people on, you know, in different eras, completely on opposite ends of the, the literary theory uh, spectrum, not, uh, not in terms of their ideas, but in terms of when they, you know, came up with their ideas. Um, what they did was they sort of systematized literature, right? They gave us a, a, systemi- a systemization by which we can understand and look at and understand what it is that we're looking at, right? That we can sort of interpret. That That's the word I was looking for there. Right. Um, and and I wonder if... And, and I love that. Like, I absolutely... Like, I was an English major. Like, you know, for better or worse, I, I came to love the sort of... Uh, systematization of literature and like figuring out where things fit into all these different systems and, and trying to figure out which systems are, are most valuable and all that kind of stuff. But I, I guess what I'm trying, I'm trying to get at is to your point, Heidi, I think is when we, when we try to take something as vast as an Epic poem, you know, the name being Epic and all. Um, and then we try to, look at it through those systems are we limiting ourselves right and i'm i'm, I'm not saying this because i'm trying to challenge north of friar aristotle or anybody who likes that i mean i love that stuff i'm trying to i'm trying to i'm wondering this you know this is something i've been thinking about um just as a lot of you know t- you know there are certain theologians who would say that when we try to systematize our faith and we look at our faith through a system we're, we're we're locking ourselves into that system. Um, so I'm wondering, I, I don't totally agree with that, but I'm wondering if there's a degree to which we can do that as readers or teachers or, you know, scholars or whatever it is that we, that we're, you know, we're limiting our ability to see everything that a story has for us. Like maybe right. there's a mystery that systematization as you, as mystery is a word you used, I think a minute ago, maybe there's a mystery in, in a story that those systems can't get to. Right, they elude it. I want to hear your thoughts, Tim, because I could, I could talk about this for forever. So you go. <laughs> you're muted. Tim, you're muted. <laughs> Man, that was bad. Um, I always think of that scene in the movie Dead Poets Society when Robin Williams, the teacher at this private boys' school, he's teaching poetry and he has the student read the foreword to this poetry anthology. And in the foreword, the poetry editor, the you know, kind of curator of this book, writes that poetry's quality can be plotted on an XY axis. And then he kind of like Robin Williams is up at the board plotting the quality of a poet of a poem on this XY axis. And there's something 
really absurd about it, right? And as viewers, we know it's absurd. And the students, you can just see the life draining out of them. And then Robin Williams says, all right, everyone, I want you to rip that page out of the book. You know, rip it, tear it. And it's this wonderful moment. I cannot tell you how much as a young man seeing that scene, it absolutely, like, it, I felt like this freedom sort of emerge in me because I felt like those students felt, I think, like, wait, we're allowed to rip a page out of a book and the book, the page that we're going to rip out is, I think, David, this thing that you're describing, this sort of like systematic approach to plotting the quality of the poem, which just sounds so absurd to me. Now, having Mm -hmm. said that, I absolutely recognize like there's that Northrop Fry and Aristotle, there's something that they're doing there that I feel like I needed freedom from as I was growing up. But I recognize that other people, they need handholds to climb the mountain. Mm-hmm. And I think Aristotle and Northrop Fry provide handholds so that people can climb the mountain. I think for me, the rule is like the same rule that you would apply to something like biology in order to really be excellent as a biologist, you have to be systematic. There's no, there's no choice. You have to be systematic and you have to separate the part from the whole. But I think the point for the biologist and the point for, let's say the reader or the literary critic is the same. It's should be done toward the end of giving life. Yeah. Not toward control. So, so I guess my question is, so say say we're plotting out the Odyssey using you know the classic the classic plot triangle, um, which which is very valuable. I'm not. I, uh, we have many friends who use this, teach with it. I teach. I've you know I'm not criticizing it in and of itself, but I'm I'm so I'm trying to think of like say we do that. How do we do that, and then also ensure that what that's doing is not right. That not telling our students this is what the story is. Right. Um, and, and like, l- how do we do that and still unlock that mystery? Like, I, because in a sense, when you systematize something, the whole point of it is to, to demystify it. That's right. So how do you demystify yeah. it and then also imbue it or, or, or point towards the mystery of it at the same time? Right. Well, as I, I keep thinking of a quote that's attributed to Chesterton, but I know it's not him. And so maybe you guys know who actually said this, um, <laughs> but probably Lewis. Or pro- um, oh, oh, I think it's Tolkien. It might is be it Tolkien? Tolkien. So, <laughs> <laughs> okay. So here's the quote. The quote is every man who goes into a brothel is looking for God. Yeah. I don't know who said that. So it's a beautiful quote. I absolutely agree with that. There is a, the image of God is in everything that we do. And, and it's oriented often to the wrong object. And, uh, but truly the thing that we desire, that eternal desire, that, that longing that is awakened by whatever artifact we encounter is for God. And, and so I'll change the quote a little bit to everyone who writes a story is looking for God. Everyone who reads a story is looking for God, right? So the question that you're asking is, how do you, how do you, honor that and maintain the mystery while knowing that 
God is so big that sometimes you need a language with which to just begin, Mm. right? To say, okay, so I'm entering into this story, this like the Odyssey that's so overwhelming and that has so many mysteries technically as well as thematically that how then is there a way that I can... um, I I really like that metaphor. Something, if you're climbing a mountain, you're not climbing a mountain because you want to look at the face of the rock, but you have to do that Mm -hmm. for a certain amount of time so you could get to the top and look out and see the beauty and the glory that you were seeking all along. And so you do kind of need those handholds along the way to help you up to get to the mystery. But that has to be the goal, to let the book always be bigger than us not to try to make it smaller so that we can hold this giant mountain in our hand or break off a piece and say, this is the whole mountain, right? And that, so so much of it has to do with how we are going to use those tools. And I can't stop that weirdo from, uh, from the movie from making the dumb X, Y axis, right? But that's, there are going to be people who can't handle the mystery. So they're going to break off a piece of the mountain and say, this is the whole thing. So that, but if we remember, we're climbing this, this, the whole point is to go into the mystery, to see beyond what we are capable of right now, that then those tools become merely avenues uh, into the mystery, not reduction of it. Heidi, I couldn't agree more. What you're describing absolutely is like, I think the purpose It's like why we're all doing what we're doing. It's why close reads exist. It's why the plays, the thing that exists. I think that is the objective. And for me, I think that the means is not the kind of like rudiments of structure that Aristotle and Northrop Fry provide. But for me, the means are the emotions that the book elicits in me when I put myself in the shoes of these different characters, like I think, I think that this book opens and we are immediately pulled into Telemachus's world and how he feels. He feels lost. He feels sad. And I think that the emotions of the book are what make this book so compelling. And I don't think it's a coincidence that so many of the great books that we discuss, be it epics or just other kind of like the titans of um, the fiction world, they begin with an emotion overtly stated. So where do we begin with the Iliad? It's Achilles in anger. Yeah. You know, where do we begin with the Aeneid? We begin with our main character, Aeneas, about to kind of like face down this hostile invading force. We begin with these emotions And I think it's the emotions when we start parsing them, when we start parsing a book and separating it into its discrete parts for the purpose of systemization or understanding, if we kind of squelch the, like that emotional impulse that keeps us involved with the book, I think that's how you take life out of it. I mean, like, you know, Hamlet, I, I keep rethinking about like what it felt like to play Hamlet. And I didn't have time. I have so many theories about what Shakespeare is doing with Hamlet, but to be, to kind of 
indwell that role as an actor, (laughs) um, to indwell that role as an actor, I get pulled along and so immersed in the story. And then there's a time to back out and to say, what is Shakespeare doing here? And how does he do it? And how can we break these different scenes apart? And what sort of genre is this? There's absolutely a place for that. But I think without first focusing on what does it feel like to be Telemachus, to be Odysseus, to be Aeneas, I think that we kind of turn our students away from like the main purpose, which is, yes, it's the search for God. It's the search for like our place in the world that God created. Right. And knowing also to go along with what you're saying, because what I hear you saying is that the emotion is also a handhold. It's not the view from the top. And um, so following those emotional responses is another avenue into the mystery of the story. Um, and, and I do think lots of people have different ways in. There are people for whom that technical experience is very immersive. Uh, and there's people who just want to feel, and there's, you know, there's just so many ways to find, to find the soul of a story that, you know, everyone who reads or writes a story is looking for God. And so that what the way you can't do it is let's look for all the things that are wrong and deconstruct and tear the story about apart because nothing has any meaning anyway. And, you know, that's why we come down so hard, at least I do on the, on the Academy right now is that in, in denying the soul of man, then you also deny the the soul of a story and you say, it's just the sum of its parts. And if you, if you tear it, tear it apart. That's why I came down so hard on that um, interpretation of Telemachus and Odysseus killing slave girls uh, from the introduction is that there is within embedded within that and within the academy, this, this idea that deconstruction is understanding, but that is, that does so, that does so much harm to the search for the soul of the story and therefore to the search for God that we're looking for in the story. Um, so I do think with your students and with, with yourselves, you can, however you get into the mystery of the story, just get there, just get there. Yeah. I like the, the concept of the soul of the story, because I think it's getting at something kind of what I was trying to say is that, you know, Mm -hmm. when we, we can look at the plot of Odysseus getting home and, and his kingdom being set right. But then the question becomes for me, like, is that the soul of the story? And maybe it is. So then if, it, if it's not the soul of the story and that becomes the focus and we're basically focusing, like, is the soul of the story, is the soul of every, is the soul of every story tied to catharsis? Hmm. So. Because Aristotle would say that it is. Uh, yeah, I think so. Right. You know, Fry talked about for him, for him, he, he was trying to create a coherent field of study that could train imagination, I think is how he put it. The same way the sciences train reason. Mm -hmm. And so does that get us to the soul of the story, I guess is what I'm asking. Maybe, or or is there some, is there some kind of universal aspect in that training or in, or in Aristotle's elements of a story that, that helps us find the soul of the story or is that 
not universally the case. I mean, I assume sometimes it's the right. case, but like the the better a story is, the less the soul of the story has to be tied to the plot. I would think maybe maybe what it is is the plot itself is is a manifestation or expression of the soul of the story. Right. Yes. So form and content are inextricably tied to the soul of the story. Uh, but to your point, so of course, of course, plot couldn't be separated because if it had a different plot. No, I'm not saying we shouldn't right, talk about plot. Right. <laughs> exactly. But the plot isn't necessarily the the soul. The plot in many ways is the body, right? Which houses the soul. So So how do you get to the soul? I mean, you have to, I don't know. I mean, that's to say that would be systematizing it, right? Like it's, it is in itself. Okay. But is there, so maybe, maybe we can't give like an, a, a formula that if you plug this in here and there, you're going to get there. But is there like a process for the digging? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Or a place, you know. Right. right, Well, and I think, that's some of what I was just trying to say with the just get there thing, because that like, I, I, I love all of the technical details. I love that stuff. Like that excites me. It gets me engaged. It gets me thinking and comparing and, 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 and feeling like I feel more about a story, the more I know about it. That's way different from what Tim is describing. Tim just a few minutes ago was saying, I would, I really want to immerse myself emotionally in it. And that's what takes me there. And it distracts me, if I'm quoting you correctly, Tim, to it, it distract and kind of strips the life out of it. Um to approach it from that kind of academic perspective. So I and I think we're both getting to the soul of the story. But just maybe, maybe honoring how differently we're getting there is part of it. Well, Tim, can I ask you a specific question? Yeah, I want to. I want to clarify something that I said. Go well, ahead. What I wanted to say is, well, go ahead. No, you clarify what you were going to say first, because it may just answer my question. Well, I, I, I should be more clear that upon a first reading or upon an early reading of a book, beginning with a systematic approach for me keeps me from being immersed in the pages, immersed in the characters, immersed in the motion, the emotions of the book, the emotions of the story. Once I know it, there are times yet that I want to step back and understand. I want to read like critical lenses on the book and it helps me understand it more. I think the thing that I'm responding to is I had a lot of very well-meaning teachers in high school and maybe even in college. And when we sat down to discuss a book, the first thing that we started talking about was, um, let's talk about the use of foreshadowing in Hawthorne's uh, Young Goodman Brown. And I was like, who cares? I mean, I'm just, I, I'm just stated overly strongly, who cares? Like, what happened in the story? Like, I, I, foreshadowing seems to me like a sort of like, let's discuss the wrench rather than discussing the car or let's talk about this branch rather than discussing the forest. Like I wanted to be in the forest and I get that people approach it in different ways. 
and maybe I'm just um, overly sensitive to, or I'm like reacting to what happened to me, kind of like as a younger person that I think had a real love for literature. And I had it kind of like extracted from me. Actually, it was a couple of college teachers that actually saved me from it because I saw them be so moved by the literature that they were reading. And I thought, oh, that's what literature is supposed to do. It's supposed to move me. So anyway, I'm with you, Heidi, about I benefit a lot from critical approaches. It's for me where they occur in relation to my reading of the story. They have to happen late. Yeah, I think that that makes sense. And I do think it's worth saying the contrast though, in, in, for the purposes of communicating, like I love the looking at the instances of foreshadowing young Goodman Brown takes me into the soul of the story from the very beginning. And this is what I'm Mm. saying, that there are multiple approaches to getting there. And so the engagement of the mind can be just as, as in the technical sense, can be just as connecting for people as the engagement and the emotions, because there's, we're whole human. So I think, but, but I would never say that everybody has to do that. I just have that kind of mind, that kind of technical mind that enjoys that kind of thing. So, um, and, and it would be wrong for me to walk into a classroom and only teach the way that excites me. And I Mm -hmm. think that's what is so mysterious about teaching the great books and teaching literature. It is entirely different from teaching a skill. We are, this isn't just a skill. We're trying to get into the mystery of the story, which of course connects. The only point of that is to connect that to the mystery of being human. And, and that is an intellectual endeavor. That's an emotional endeavor. That's a spiritual endeavor. That's a lifelong pilgrimage that we all have to develop. And I think I wouldn't, I mean, in no way are we trying to elevate the great books and the great stories to the level of revelation. And, and, but at the same time, there's a similar approach to how our souls are formed and so that's why I'm saying like, just get there. If you like the technical stuff, go for it. If you so, don't like the technical stuff, just read the story. So is the common ground between say the two of you, just for the sake of conversation, I'll, I'll right. maybe put you on a, a divide. I'll, I'll assume for the sake of conversation that there's a divide between you, even though there's probably not. But is the, is the common ground between both of you that the story comes first? Whereas you might look at a lot of different literary theories where it's about the theory comes first and then the story. Is that would you say that's the common ground, Tim? It, it sounds to me like it is. Yeah. And Fighting. submitting to the story, I think, yeah. is yes, the story comes first and we submit. Are, they, to are it. these two different methods of submission? Sure. And there's others other than the ones we're saying. It isn't, I think what I'm saying is it is, I am ecumenical <laughs> in how people mm. get there. Mm. So let me ask this. We people talk about the idea of literary reading of something. That's that's a that's a phrase that Adam Andrews has used on this podcast a lot. And I'm I bring his name up because I'm sure someone out there is going to say that I was trying to disagree with Adam Andrews, and I actually am not. Um, and then their their approach, which is you know more uh, tactical, I, maybe is a word that I, that I might use, and they might not like that word. So they can we can have a debate if they want. But so. Is the, is the question, what is the soul of the story, a literary question? 
Tim, what do you think about that? What does that question so, mean? Heidi, is this is the question? <laughs> I'm staring <laughs> blankly at the like ceiling, that. as you can see. So the question is, what is the soul of this story? That's a question that Heidi brought up earlier. We kind of been using that as a sort of framework. Is the is that question about the Odyssey say? To bring it back to our book, so we can is it a literary? Question? Is that a literary question? Oh man, that is. I'm stumped because I my. <laughs> I'm bamboozled. You've you've stopped me in my tracks. You've, you've flabbergasted. Yes, you've Socrateseed me. Um, metanoia. <laughs> um, Less thing you ever said to me. I right, like that's. I don't know. I want it to be a literary question. I think it should be a literary it? It? question, but in the sense of. And 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 I'm yeah. So defining the terms, Tim's going to ask us to define our terms, right? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm going to do. I don't know what like the question means. What is the soul of the story? That clearly means something. Um, but I don't know what that means. Okay, Does well, let's mean... go back. What do we mean by soul? <laughs> What's, okay. What is the soul of something? Heidi, you used it, so you have to define it. Yeah, okay. Um, I would say that being careful not to systematize something that is a mystery, that um, it... What I'm talking about is how a story can access that kind of eternal longing within us that we've, I mean, I don't want to speak for y'all, but I feel that when I read the Odyssey, I feel that when I read the great books, right? That, and, so it's the and, thing that's in the story that speaks to some Yes, that, that connects to, as you brought up earlier, David, that connects to the universal story that we're all a part of, like the mystery of being human. That's what I'm talking about, about the soul of the story and how that particular story specifically explores that. For example, with the Odyssey, um, uh, it would be the, the desire to come home and to find peace, right? And whatever home means. So whether it's like a theme. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But again, theme is just a, a a systematizing word that we're placing over this concept, right? Of the thing that that we can't name that we have a hard time, but we all recognize when we read the Odyssey. That that speaks that's to the... the thing, right? And and but and the Odyssey is specifically about homecoming, and the Iliad isn't about homecoming. And so, what is the soul of the Iliad? Right, it's it it connects to the universal story in a different way, and I know I'm stumbling over that and and talking too much, but I think it's because it's I, I do have a hard time to go back to what you said before, kind of systematizing something that I would say absolutely can't be necessarily put into words. So I just repeat myself. <laughs> well, so that takes us back to what Tim was talking about about emotion, right? Right. So. I mean, I don't know if I'd even be as specific as you are when I'm talking about the idea of the soul of something. I might, of the story, I might be trying to figure out like, what is, there's got to be some characteristic that is its most essential thing, right? So like, I guess that's why I brought up the question earlier. Is the plot, the narrative sort of structure of the story, the thing that is its most essential, like the thing that without it, it's not the same anymore. Right, the always like the, the most defining the always thing. has three sides and only has three sides. So that you know, that's the Aristotelian kind of the always and only definition, which the, I'm trying the, to be very elusive about. 
Uh, right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so Tim, does that, I mean, so then if, if that's, let's, let's assume those, that sort of definition that she's talking about there and that I'm maybe yeah. stripping down a little bit, if that's the case, then what is, I didn't mean that mean way. Um, <laughs> then what is, is the question to ask what that is of a story? Is that a literary question? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's probably the primary literary question. I, I, I would say, I think this is the same as what Heidi said. I would say that the question, what is the soul of the story, is another way of asking. <laughs> I'm just going to totally make this my own now that I think about it. <laughs> I think the question, what is the soul of the story, is what is the, what is the master desire of the main character? What is the main character want more than anything else that's like really slimming the question down maybe to a point that the two of you might object but i think by slimming it down we would get answers to all of the big literary questions like um what is the chief theme of this story? What are, what are the moral implications of the main character's actions? Well, it seems to um, me that it also brings it back to how you, to your emotional response to it as well. Because it's, if it's about a longing or a yearning of a main character, that's not that, that's kind of a, that's probably going to, your emotional response to it is probably going to be somewhat tied to, to, to that, to your relationship to that same longing or yearning, isn't it? I think so. Yeah. But I think even if I don't begin the book, like, I don't think that we all begin the book. Uh, I won't say <laughs> that. I think that we can learn what a main character's master desire is. Even if at the beginning of the book, we don't understand why it's something that they crave so deeply, because I think beneath it, um, beneath that master desire, even if we don't understand the master desire at the beginning of the book, is some genuine, let's call it like universal human impulse for a good thing. So for uh, Odysseus, I think it is uh, to be reunited with his wife and to set his home and his kingdom back in order. I think that's his master desire. I don't necessarily understand everything about what Ithaca was like in the day. I don't understand the warrior code to the same extent that like an ancient Greek would. I don't understand those things to the same depth that an original reader would, but I do understand them enough that I can get with that master desire. And, and I think that master desire like appeals to thing in me that are, that are universal. Hmm. Well, we're out of time. <laughs> we're like way out of time, but we're just getting started. Uh, <laughs> we, <laughs> we actually probably should wrap this up because we're well over an hour um, and we have other stuff to do. Um, we do have the Q&A next week. So while we didn't address things super specific to, <laughs> to the book today, we will be able to do that by answering your questions. So if there's something we didn't talk about that you want us to talk about, then uh, throw that in the question queue and we will get to as many as we can. Uh, Heidi and Tim, final thoughts as we wrap up this episode. Uh, Heidi, I'll let you go first so that Tim can catch his breath because he just talked last. Final thoughts <laughs> on all of the mysteries of 
what it means. Yeah, I was thinking about your question about the um, whether or not it's a literary question. And I think it's, I'll, I'll draw a, a pretty firm dichotomy. It's either not a literary question at all, or it's the only literary question. And and I think that that goes to what Tim the was saying. The only or the most literary question? No, like the only. Like then, then everything has to be sublimated to that. Everything has to be subjugated under the only literary question is to find the soul of the story. And, um, and so then that goes to what Tim was saying about um, and the, the tools of analysis and how they can potentially rob um, the, the beauty and the glory of finding that and being formed by that. Um, or else it's not a literary yeah, or else it's not a literary question at all. And then literature, literary analysis is just that, analysis. And finding the soul of the story is something else altogether. And so um, I so I don't know. I'm still going to be thinking about it, dot, dot, dot. It's interesting that you use the word potentially there because sometimes when people hear someone like my dad or I say that, that, that analysis can be sometimes be scary, what they... What I think people hear us saying is that analysis is bad. When right. really what we're saying is analysis, the tools of analysis are tools that need to be wielded carefully because in the wrong hands, they can turn into, you know, they can be... Destruction. Destruction, like any, yeah. yeah. But if they're used proper, but that's true of, you know, the tools of Socratic teaching or mimetic teaching or whatever it is, you know, right. if you wield... or any, the tools of classical education, yeah. right? Like yeah, anything exactly. it, that has great power to build also has great power to destroy. And the tools of analysis, literary analysis are the same. And I think someone who, you know, like, I'm just going to, because I know he'll, he'd be happy to talk about it. You know, someone who is, uh, is a big fan of the concept of analysis, like Adam Andrews or my, or his son, uh, and daughter-in-law who are good friends of ours, they, you know, I don't think they would disagree with that at all. You know, I think what they would say is, you know, that analysis is a very good thing, but people, some people do it wrong. And so their goal is to create tools for wielding that properly. And mm -hmm. that's where we would say that's such an important, amazing work. And so we support that. Like, we're not in any way saying that that's, <laughs> that analysis is somehow like a, uh, like an inherently bad thing, but you know, be careful about how you wield it. It's like chocolate, right? <laughs> yes. I don't know. That's not even like fair. That's not, that's not even fair. Chocolate could be, I guess be an inherently bad thing for some people. It would be very dangerous for me to eat all the chocolate I want to eat in yeah. life. <laughs> so I'll be careful about that analogy, but I think you know what my point is. Tim, your final thought. This is a, this is a really big question. And I don't really know. Maybe I, we should have I, just shot away. I don't it. know. <laughs> no, I love mm -hmm. it. It seems perfectly appropriate for the end of like the first massive epic that we've done on this show to have a big philosophical discussion about, you know, like it's kind of like how do you read literature? Where do you begin with literature? That's that's the question for me that we're having is where do you begin with literature? Um so I can't tell where my convictions are formulated because of my experience and where my convictions are formulated because kind of I would advocate for certain things independent of me. I just think it's a good approach to literature. And I tend to, I tend to think both that my, I really favor like an immersive approach to begin the reading of a story or a great tale 
and secondarily to go with tools and system and structure. I just maybe my experience, I mean, like everything ultimately is like what I have experienced in the world. But this to me reaches a level of almost kind of like, I'm a, I really want to make a kind of like universal claim. It's how we should all go. But obviously, Heidi is a great reader. David is a great reader. And it sounds like we have kind of like a different, a different way of beginning, a different, a different approach at the beginning of a story. My approach generally consists of reading a couple pages and then looking at my iPhone and then, you know, getting up and walking away and forgetting that I was reading that book and coming back to it like three months later and then wondering why people read such <laughs> long books in the first place. It's fine. We're all, we're ecumenical. <laughs> Although You're I'm not ecumenical. sure what I described. I'm ecumenical. I don't think that what I just described is actually reading. Um, all right, you guys go to, do you need to address anything else? Take issue with anything? Tim's shaking his head. I... I think we're okay. good. All right. Well, don't forget to Go. post your questions on the Facebook group or you can email them to us at closereadspodcast at gmail.com. Tim, what were you going to say? I said, go Odysseus. <laughs> yeah, we'll talk, we'll talk more about the uh, Odysseus himself, Penelope herself, um, the next episode. If, if nobody asks questions about it, we'll just bring it up. Um, but I'm pretty sure we'll get some questions. So um, thank you to everyone who's been listening. Don't forget you can rate and review this show. And then also don't forget that if you want to get our bonus podcast and some sweet show swag, patreon.com slash close reads to support the show on Patreon. And with that, for Heidi White and for Tim McIntosh, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. We will talk to you next week and happy reading in the meantime. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.